Well, I'm out for my walk around the park near my house in locked down Sydney on a glorious, sunny, warm winter's day. Because I can't go to where I would normally record this for you because it's more than five kilometres away from my home, which is the radius that I'm currently allowed to move in. And even within that radius, I can only go out for a legitimate reason, one of which is exercise, hence my walking podcast introduction today, and you get to enjoy the bucolic sounds of birds in the background, and perhaps the occasional truck. I woke up to two interesting tweets this morning. One by an economic historian who's a conservative, who's anti-lockdown in the States, tweeting, Australia is currently a militarised police state with one of the most draconian lockdowns in the world. They also have an abysmal vaccination rate due to government incompetence. Now, I have been very critical on this podcast and on the radio airwaves and elsewhere about how the government bungled the procurement of vaccines last year. But even I would say that at this point, there's no point being critical of that right now. Everyone is all hands on deck, desperately trying to get as many vaccines into as many arms as possible. So we can criticise past policy decisions, and I will continue to do so. But it's a bit rich to say that right now, Australia is mishandling the vaccination. Australia is also not militarised. There's been tons of misinformation about this that I've seen in the United States. Even the BBC misreported this with a headline saying that soldiers were going from house to house in Sydney enforcing the lockdown. The military isn't enforcing the lockdown. That's unconstitutional. It would be against the law. The military, as in most countries, does not do domestic law enforcement. That's up to the civilian police. The military are there unarmed to assist people if they need anything, the same way they would be during any disaster, the same way they are in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, when there's a flood or a drought or a bushfire, the military are additional pairs of hands. So this whole militarization meme that's been going around in on Twitter and so on, it's nonsense. It's not militarized. That's not what they're doing. A police state, well, that's a bit rich. I mean, I associate a police state with being anti-democratic and having no rule of law and no recourse to uh, representative assemblies and parliaments and so on. It's clearly not a police state. And yet, and yet, we do have one of the most draconian lockdowns in the world at the moment. And the other tweet which I saw was while I was reading about the catastrophe in Afghanistan which I don't want to even get into here for fear that I might just cry. I'd been reading a number of tweets about people in Kabul having to flee, the Taliban taking control, the imposition of new restrictions on swathes of Afghanistan that had been nominally free for the past 20 years. And I saw a tweet that said, Playgrounds, basketball courts, skate parks and exercise equipment closed from 11.59pm tonight. And I thought, those bastards, the Taliban, next they're going to be banning music and girls' poetry. And then I realised, oh no, hang on, this is about Victoria. 
Then it goes on to say, this is a Twitter thread by a journalist from The Guardian, religious broadcasts will have to use the same crew every week. Permits for authorised work will be back from 11.59pm tomorrow night, but construction will be limited to five people on small sites, reduced to 25% on large sites. Victorian police will be investigating whether there were breaches of licences of venues involved in takeaway pub delivery. Exercises with one other person and your dependents. It is not an opportunity for families to catch up in the park. A curfew has been introduced in Melbourne as of yesterday. I'm recording this on Tuesday, so you're probably hearing on Wednesday within the past couple of days. After 9pm, you've got to be inside your house. You can't leave again until 5am. That's the way that Victoria does lockdowns. And I have spoken on this podcast in the past about my frustration with the Sydney lockdown, which seems interminable and also half-hearted, which seems loose enough to allow the virus to continue to circulate, but strict enough to be a pain in the ass for everybody. I have said, if you're going to do a lockdown, why not just do a lockdown? Go the whole hog. Lock us inside. Do the full curfew. Close the hardware stores. Close the supermarkets. Have only the most essential workers doing the most essential duties. If you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're giving vaccinations, if you're delivering food, if you're conducting emergency broadcasts on the radio, then you can work. Everyone else stays home. And yet, I'd be lying if I said that a little part of me wasn't sympathetic to the American tweeter who was criticising Australia for its draconian lockdowns and calling us a militarised police state. And I say this because... When I ask myself a simple question, I worry about the answer. And that question is, when does this end? Like up until now, I felt that the, the binary between are we a free people or are we going to be locked down cowards has been a phony one. Because the places that didn't lock down, that didn't take the virus seriously, ended up entering horrible, dark, lengthy periods of quasi-de facto lockdown anyway. Most of the world was locked down, whether there was a lockdown imposed or not, when the pandemic was truly raging, because nobody wants to go out and sit in a cafe with friends if it might make them incredibly sick for two weeks and potentially kill their parents. So people hunker inside. And for 13 months, Sydney was living in a blissful fantasy land where New South Wales was adept at keeping out the virus, at using its incredible contact tracing to clamp down on any outbreaks from the quarantine hotel system before they got out of control. And we were going to concerts, we were going to the theatre, we were going to, we were living again in a way that not only people in lockdowns couldn't, but even people who weren't in lockdown in places where the virus was circulating. But now Delta has upended all of the epidemiological assumptions that underpinned that success. And here we are, stuck with a stubborn number of new daily cases in a kind of Groundhog Day holding pattern, not sure what the end game is. Look, at some point in the perhaps distant future, Australia's international border will be open and human beings will be coming into this country without having to quarantine for two weeks. When they do, even if all of them are vaccinated, 
Some of them are going to be carrying coronavirus, and some of them are going to be infectious. So the endless focus on daily case numbers, completely detached from any consideration about hospitalization numbers, death numbers, economic numbers, the numbers of people who can't see their families abroad, the numbers of people who could be coming here to visit who aren't. At some point, this fixation on daily case numbers and this knee-jerk lockdown in order to get to COVID zero is going to seem a bit bizarre. And it's starting to feel bizarre to me. I hate to think of myself as becoming one of these old ratbag right-wing anti-lockdown types. But in the absence of any purpose to all of this, what are we doing? What is Dan Andrews doing? There are 20 daily cases in Victoria. And you're not allowed to leave your home after 9pm. I mean, you don't have to be a wild-eyed civil libertarian to think that there might be something wrong with governments asserting to themselves the right to completely overhaul the lives of their citizens with no real consultation and no clear health guidelines as to why they're doing what they're doing, just the whims of state cabinet. Why is there a curfew? What does a curfew achieve? What's the data say? I don't believe the data says anything about a curfew. I don't think there's any evidence that whether or not you can go outside your front door at 9.02pm has an impact on the spread of the virus. Now, if the pursuit of zero COVID cases was a sustainable long-term strategy, then maybe I'd put up with a little bit of draconian police state activity for a short period of time, as it was supposed to be in the initial nine-week lockdown when the pandemic erupted last March. If we could say, okay, well, once we get to zero, here's how the borders are going to open and here's how vaccination is going to work and here's how we can reasonably expect to be a country that is involved in the global activity of the planet that has people coming and going, that has money coming and going, that has industry, that has human beings who can see their family, who can come and go, that's a nimble, agile, 21st century economy where people aren't racked by mental health problems while they hunker down at home. Here's the way out and here's the way to maintain zero cases in perpetuity without lockdowns. Then I'd probably be on board for that. But it's been obvious since the start of 2021 that zero COVID was a temporary strategy in order to get us to the finish line with vaccines. And there's no point in trying to live inside a fiction that we're going to be able to maintain zero cases forever and have anything like a kind of country that you would actually want to live in. An open country, a free country, a vibrant country, a multicultural country. It was always a stopgap. Well, when's it going to stop? I at least want to hear something about when's it going to stop? What is the end game? Why are we, why are we doing this? Why do we have this relentless fixation on zero COVID cases right now, still, when we're running as fast as we can towards vaccination? And just to be explicit here, the problem is that the vaccines aren't very good at preventing infection. They're fantastic at preventing hospitalization and death, severe illness. But they're not great at stopping you from getting virus in your system and testing positive on a test. 
And they're not fantastic. They seem to be about reduced by about 50%. At least in the case of Delta, it was a lot more with the original Wuhan strain, but in the case of Delta, reduced by about 50% your chances of catching it and your chances of giving it. So whoop-de-doo. If we were otherwise going to have 10,000 new cases a day, we'll get 5,000 new cases a day. Even that scale of a number makes most Australians shit their pants. But it shouldn't. What should matter is, are any of those cases getting really, really crook? Are any of those cases on ventilators? Are any of those cases dying? Let's look at the numbers from the UK. Now, admittedly, it's a very different situation. A large proportion of the UK population has already caught coronavirus, and a significant number of people in the UK have already died from coronavirus. So, as an aside to people who aren't in Australia, who are a little bit baffled by how hysterical Australia seems and think it's a completely irrational overreaction, let me just contradict what I've been talking about for the, for the, for the past 10 minutes and provide a little bit of context. The reality is Australia still has not had a first wave of coronavirus. We might talk about the first wave, but we haven't had what other countries mean by a first wave. We haven't had those long weeks of nothing but sirens in the streets, of hospitals overflowing, of people being sent home, of refrigerated trucks full of bodies in Brooklyn, of pop-up hospitals being erected in Central Park under tents. We just haven't had a wave of mass casualties. And the blunt reality is that that means that a lot of the people who are currently in Australia who are most at risk of coronavirus, people for whom a vaccine is not very effective, people who can't get vaccinated for whatever reason, and can't muster the immune response if they do, cancer patients, the elderly, people living with HIV, many of those people who are most at risk in the UK and the US are dead. So we don't really have the luxury of opening up in the same way that other countries do because we haven't essentially culled the population through our own ineptitude at the beginning. We were too good too fast, and now we're caught in a little Chinese finger trap. We are victims of our own success to some extent. We can't be as cavalier about letting the virus circulate as other countries that have already wiped out significant numbers of their vulnerable can. We also don't benefit from any level of background immunity in the population. So in a country like the UK, you may have a bunch of anti-vaxxers, but a significant number of those anti-vaxxers will have caught COVID already. So they're not at great risk of catching it and dying. So if it seems like Australia is being completely irrational, part of the reason is we have to be cautious that if it gets out of the bag and we let it run rampant, we don't plunge ourselves back into where Italy and the UK and New York were last April. That being said, let's look at some numbers. In the UK, the percentage of the adult population that is vaccinated is almost 90% with first dose. Almost 90% first dose. Second dose is 77%. Now, Gladys Berejiklian, and the Premier of New South Wales, says that New South Wales and Sydney are going to be able to do things considerably differently once we hit 70%, ideally 80% vaccinated. Well, the UK, which is way ahead of us in vaccinations, is only at 77% second dose. They are well and truly fully-fledged back-to-normal life. They are back to stadiums, they are back to concerts, they are 
living their living the dream, baby. They are just paying no heed to lockdowns in the UK at the moment. You'll recall Freedom Day. Their case numbers are fine in comparison to what they historically had been. Massively higher than they are in Australia. But we're talking about twenty to 30,000 new cases a day. Now, the UK population is 2.7 times Australia's. So you can sort of basically think about a third of these numbers as a, on a per capita basis. So you're thinking about maybe 10,000 cases a day in Australia. We currently have 400-odd in New South Wales and a, a smattering in other states. So about 20 times the daily case numbers. And the deaths are at about 20 to 30 a day. 26 is the last record. Hospitalizations are pretty high. About eight to 900 people a day are getting hospitalized with COVID in the UK. But the total number in the country who are on ventilators is less than 900 people. So that's about, that would equate to about 300 in Australia, 350, if you were just doing a one-to-one comparison per capita. So what price would you be willing to pay to not have to worry about lockdowns, to not have to worry about burdening future generations with the massive debt that we're creating by job keeper and job seeker and job saver and job trainer and all of this money that the government's shoveling into the economy just to try to keep people's heads above water, but failing even at that because the government's never going to throw enough money at it to actually replace people's full incomes. What price would you pay to have this all over with? Would it be acceptable for case numbers to increase from where they currently are around about the four or 500 new cases a day mark in Australia up to 10,000 a day, which is roughly what the UK is experiencing on a per capita basis. If of those 10,000 cases, fewer than 300 were being hospitalised and only about 10 a day were dying. That's roughly what's happening in the UK. The last data I've got here on the British government website is 26 deaths uh, on the most recent day from coronavirus. Now, they've got 2.7 times our population, so 26 deaths. That's a little less than 10 people a day in a population the size of Australia. And they are running rampant. They are doing nothing with a lockdown. Admittedly, I'm adding all of the caveats that I said at the start. They've already got a bit of latent immunity because so many people have caught it. And they're up at 77% double-dose vaccination, almost 90% first dose. If that's the goal, if the goal really is... Let's just hang on, stay in this holding pattern, limp towards the finish line, try to keep the numbers somewhere where they currently are, maybe below a 1,000 new cases a day, but sort of remotely get on with life with plenty of social distancing and masks and so on. And then let's see how things go once we're at 70% vaccination. Then I'm on board. And it seems to me that that's the subtext of the New South Wales government. And I have been patient, extremely patient, because I'm hoping that Gladys Berejiklian and potentially Scott Morrison can come around to that way of thinking. Gladys is dropping hints (laughs) when she talks about vaccination being the way out of this. And then she was rebuffed by the Prime Minister who said vaccination isn't the way out of this, the lockdown is the way out of the lockdown. The lockdown has to work. And then 
Gladys Berejiklian went to National Cabinet last week and all of her counterparts in other states slapped her down, got furious that Sydney's lockdown wasn't serious enough and requested that she reiterate her commitment to National Cabinet's goal of zero COVID, of suppressing COVID. And she politely said yes. They said if there's going to be any change to New South Wales' strategy, you have to come here and pass it by National Cabinet first. And she said okay. She's still on the zero COVID bandwagon officially. But what I hope is that the last thought in her head before she goes to bed each night is, fuck those assholes, we are going to do it and we are going to prove that we can succeed. Because there is no future that is zero COVID anywhere. It is a global pandemic. It is coming. We can't hide from it. We have to make ourselves resilient, and the easiest way to make ourselves resilient is by getting vaccinated. But the second easiest way to make ourselves resilient is to stop bullshitting ourselves about zero COVID being a long-term strategy, which is why I don't understand what Victoria is doing. Now, Victorians will feel rightly aggrieved, perhaps, that New South Wales hasn't been taking the lockdown as seriously as Victorians do when they have put up with so much, and my heart goes out to you if you're in Melbourne or Victoria. But the reality is there comes a point at which you've got to go stick a fork in it. It's done. We're over. We don't live in a dictatorship. We don't live in an arbitrary society where the government makes capricious rules with no purpose. Lockdowns, curfews, massive prohibitions on individual liberties, that's all kosher in a time of emergency. But at what point do we stop calling it a time of emergency? At what point does it become the new normal? And I do worry about the future of freedom in Australia. Not in the knee-jerk reactionary sense of saying there should never be a lockdown because I want to be able to go out and have parties. But in the much more prudent, thoughtful, measured sense of I expect my government to have very, very good reasons for infringing my liberty. Over the grand sweeping course of human history across countries and civilizations and centuries, the greatest impediment to human flourishing has been governments, has been aristocrats, has been elites, has been people with militaries, people with guns, people with power, people with money. Those people can always skirt the rules. The little guy can't. And I don't want us to sleepwalk into a situation where we become okay with governments arbitrarily exercising massive powers with no good data and no good reason and no long-term plan. Now, I'm sure that the Victorian lockdown will be more effective than the New South Wales lockdown. It's a lot harsher. They've gotten onto it a lot quicker. And they're going to come out of it at COVID zero at some point crowing about how they did things right and haven't the tables turned since earlier this year when everyone thought that Gladys was better at managing lockdowns. Well, that Victorian metal has really proven to be more resilient and more tough than the effete hedonistic Sydney-siders who couldn't handle a real lockdown and have spiralled out of control. And I will grant all of that and come back to my basic question, what now? What next? Bravo, if you get back to COVID zero. And then what? Nobody ever goes to Bali again? My grandchildren never see their American grandparents again? 
What's the game plan, Australia? I don't know exactly what I'm calling for, but I would encourage you to do two things. One, get vaccinated as fast as you possibly can, because that's our only way out of this. And two, start to change your thinking and your conversations away from focusing on the daily case numbers. But someday we're going to have to. At some day, that has to stop being the priority. We can't keep being held hostage by insanely insular, parochial people like the West Australian Premier, who is going to insist upon zero COVID cases indefinitely. And he wants to enforce that vision of Australia's future on people who are much more cosmopolitan, much more multicultural, much more engaged with the international community than he is in cities like Sydney and Melbourne. I'm not going to have it. If it means that I, as a Sydney cider, am allowed to fly to Taipei and Singapore before I'm allowed to fly to Perth, fine. I have no problem with that. My concern is that our lust for community, for national unity, and frankly, our tacitly authoritarian streak in this country is going to permit us to be bullied by smaller premiers and by fearmongers which will prevent us from having the conversations we need to have in order to get to the next stage of this pandemic. And I was gobsmacked to see the severity of the Victorian lockdown. Gobsmacked. Because it's completely inconsistent with any kind of long-term plan. All it does is go back to the same old rule book from the early days of the pandemic, which is get to COVID zero. And that's worked fantastically well for the first chapter. But come on, people. It's time for chapter two. <sighs> anyway, I hope that's not too much of a downer. We've got a great conversation today that has absolutely nothing to do with coronavirus. I hit up James Matheson, who was one of the original hosts of Australian Idol, and a wonderful guy, a smart guy. He actually ran for parliament after his television career. And... He now has a podcast, and we, it's run by the same uh, outfit as this podcast is hosted by, by ACAST, Terrific People. And I actually bumped into him at the li- in the lift while I was going up there and said, oh, you should do my podcast. And then on the morning of the taping, I texted him. I said, well, maybe in the evening before, I said, uh, just text me a few things that you want to talk about on the show. And uh, he sent me back a few options. And when we got in the studio, we ended up spending much of the time talking about psychedelics and he has such a wonderful mind because he darts back and forth between the very prosaic political concerns of everyday life and the vast wondrous cosmic concerns of consciousness psilocybin and spirituality i do hope you enjoy this conversation with the one and only james matheson you would know will know are quite difficult to pin down and like they're like oh you know i could do it in four weeks could give you 17 minutes at quarter past two uh in four weeks time but you're quite easy to pin down and then impossible to actually get you know what i mean like (laughs) the logistics there's too many platforms there's too many platforms yeah i'm I'm pretty good on text i'm pretty good on text you're not very good on text some days i check my 
No, really? I, but that, that, I, I say that not in a disparaging way because I wish I was worse on text because I'm jealous of my partner, Sean, for being the type of person who can not look at his phone for three hours and not respond to a text of mine, which I find aggravating right. as the person who wants an immediate response. But I also wish I ah. could do that because I'm always like, <laughs> someone just texted me. I have to respond immediately. But, you know, you, you'll yeah. give me a leisurely, a leisurely 45 minutes to three hours before responding to a text message. Correct. Yeah, but I will get back to you. Whereas emails can just sit there, accumulate, yeah. build up, unread. Oh, too many. Not even looking. <laughs> Have you heard of email forgiveness day? Uh, where you just purge? Yeah. Well, I think it actually has. To, I think it's a day when you're allowed to respond to uh, any email <laughs> that's been sitting around that you've been meaning to respond to without having to go through the whole laborious explanation of why you haven't responded to it yet. Oh, I don't bother with that. Right. <laughs> I just say sorry about the delay. <laughs> Even That's if it's it. from, but what if it's from eighteen months ago? I've done that. Absolutely. Really? Sorry I'll about the delay. I'll try one. I'll try. I'll try and find one. And it it's, a, to you. it's an email about an overseas trip pre-pandemic, and you're just like, sorry about the delay. Can't come to Bali since you sent that email. There's been a global pandemic. Sorry. It sort of explains itself, though. That one's that one would be useful. That explain does explain itself. Yeah. No, I like the I like email forgiveness day. I also pride myself on having a lot of unread emails, which f- other people find horrifying, but I enjoy. Let me take a look at what am I up to now on my so my mail app on my phone. You want to take a stab at what the little red notification symbol of unread email says? I reckon it's between 280 and 712. Oh, mate, you're going over. Yeah, that's too, that's unfair. It's 211,197, which is pretty good. Almost a quarter of a million unread emails. <laughs> that can't be right. No, mate, I'll send you a screenshot. Absolutely. 211,000? Yeah. Oh, were you thinking just What's 200, the... 250? I, I've experimented with zero inbox before, which is pretty good. You just have to be quite diligent. But the thing is, it's like um, having a to-do list that you leave on the kitchen counter for your family and then anyone can just add to that to-do list Yeah, unsolicited. Yeah. So you wake up and you're like, oh, um, people have just added. No, I think it's horrendous. Oh, I also am a big objector to, to inbox zero and the, not to the particular strategy but to the kind of mindset that it, that it comes from and that it seeks to, to foster. It's, it actually is a... It's a in in this kind of Silicon Valley tech bro like life hacky way. It is a way of diverting your attention from things that matter to things that really don't. Like, I know that all the like all the Aspergersy tech bros in Silicon Valley like get a hard on for you know hacks that enable them to have no no emails in their inbox. But in reality, it actually doesn't matter if you have two hundred eleven thousand unread emails in your inbox if it's not impacting your life. At all, so I'd rather be like writing a novel. Not that I am writing yeah. a novel, but at least I can feel guilty about not writing a novel for more important reasons than just that I was clearing out my inbox. But also, that your assumption there is that it does have, it doesn't have any impact on you. That there isn't some sort of baseline anxiety that comes along with knowing that these things are out there inside the ether of your brain or, or, or bubbling below the surface. So There's not. Trust when it, me. It's like. <laughs> it's pure it's pure liberation james I, I feel so happy to know you know what it lands as i it, it, I've, it's a personality type thing it's I like know that, having a shit it's like it's like cleaning your room by just dumping all the shit under your bed like is your room really clean 
But that's what Inbox Zero does, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, that's what Inbox Zero does. It's like just find all of the things that relate to work and put them in this folder. Find all the things that relate to, you know, promotional specials from things that you subscribe to and put them in this folder. And then you can feel good about yourself because your inbox is zero. Yeah, but all the monsters are still lurking in my my shitbox folders that you just got me to shovel everything into. That would give me greater anxiety than the pure than the purity of knowledge that I have two hundred eleven thousand unread emails. I know some people that stresses them out because they go, "Oh my god, I'm going to have to get to all those things." What I think is, is, I think I think when I look at that number, James, I feel like that's two hundred eleven thousand times that some fucktard has tried to distract me from doing from living my life, and I refused. Mm. That's that is it's freedom. That's freedom. That's you freedom. know what's even a greater level of freedom is select all and then delete. <laughs> just purge them. Just absolutely. Send but them I, I am still, I, but I'm still vaguely worried that there's something from 2008 that I'll want at some stage. You know, someone sent me something. Yeah, it right. was a really cute dog pic that someone sent. Uh, anyway, let's talk about psychedelics because I'm interested in uh, in your enthusiasm for them and uh, your loathing of the of the war on drugs. What? Uh, why did you text me this as a suggested subject? Well, you said, "What should we talk about?" <laughs> I don't um, mean why did you propose something. I mean, why is that the thing that you proposed? <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm always interested in talking to people about what they think about, not not in the sense of what thoughts enter their mind but what do they find themselves thinking about when they have that time and i often feel like there's a few things that most people circle back to i don't know if that's true for you but if you go for a walk or you have some moment to sort of contemplate what's going on in the world or just in your own life are there a few common themes that you tend to circle back to yeah yeah sure yeah I what don't would spend be, a lot what of. Would be a couple of them. Well, I mean, they change over time, don't they? Lately, I've been feeling self-recrimination for not writing a project that I wanted to, that I would have liked to have done this year. So there's a lot of that, like procrastination mindset of like, fuck, why can't I just find the time to like really carve that out? Because I know that my soul would sing if I did that, and then another part of my head going. Yeah, but there are all these other much more productive ways of using your time that you should be working on. You should be pitching this thing and, like, you know, focusing on that thing, which are much more prosaic mm. and mundane. So there's a lot of that. Yeah. that I mean, that, feel, that yeah, yeah, that feels like chatter. That feels like the yeah. chatter. But are there things that you sort of ruminate about in terms of the bigger picture, I guess? Uh, well, when I'm at no. my, <laughs> no, well, when I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to f- understand wh- where you're going with the question, because the, the, when I'm at my best, like when I'm, you know, when I've just ridden a bike to the top of a volcano on Easter Island and I'm watching the sunrise, then I have like moments of intense kind of spiritual connection to the cosmos and intense curiosity. I mean, I'm very, I was someone who in my teens, suddenly devoured and discovered Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and Richard Feynman and became a complete obsessive about like the size of the universe and the amazingness of the cosmos we find ourselves in and how extraordinary evolution is and and all that. Um, So I still tap into that well as my principal source of big picture 
stuff when I'm in the right frame of mind. Yeah. I think I guess I, I asked because when you said, why do we want to talk about this topic? Like one of the things that I always sort of come back to when I'm just not lost in the own chatter of my mind, but just the thoughts that continue to return are always like, how, how can we as a society improve? Like, why are we where we are at? You know, we're these brilliant species of animals, but we're still mired in so much of our own bullshit. Mm. Um, and, and often within that, like the power and importance of psychedelics often finds a thread that um, springs up because in so many ways it is a pathway to freeing ourselves from a, a lot of the things that plague us. Yeah. Um, it's not a panacea, but, you know, the, the, the fact that a lot of cultures, most cultures, have used them for generations to connect with themselves, to connect with each other, to connect with the land, um, and to connect with that, you know, greater purpose or spiritual self that you were talking about. Um, and yet we as a society have not just cast them off as sort of dangerous, we've, we've outlawed them. We've allowed the state to decide whether or not we can participate in medicines that have been used by humans for, you know, maybe mm. 100,000 years. I mean, and researchers aren't even really allowed to study their utility. Like increasingly in the States they can now because there are more and more exemptions. But uh, in places like Australia, it's really hard to even do research on it, except for in very, very small ways. It, I mean, it is a tra- it is a tragedy that at the time at which these compounds were becoming <clears throat> widespread, it was also a moment of enormous civil and cultural unrest in the United States in the '60s and the Vietnam War and the hippie movement and all of the the kind of free love that these things created got tangled up in an anti-establishment sort of uh, destabilization. I mean, a, a, an anti-establishment movement that destabilized powerful institutions and led to the Nixon administration declaring the war on drugs and these compounds essentially getting swept up in the in all of that. And then there was basically a pause button placed on all of the research into them for a half century, which is now just gradually being relaxed and we're starting to look into them some more. But what is it that you think, where, where, like, where do you think we would be as a society if that hadn't happened? I mean, I, th- I think any time that the existing power structures are threatened by some sort of emerging threat to their existence, then they're always going to come down on it. So, I mean, it may have happened one way or another. So I think the, the fact that this time around the approach has been there has to be a lot of science, a lot of rigorous investigation, a lot of testing and a lot of responsibility around it probably sets the movement on a much steadier ground than it would have if, you know, we had um, perpetuated down the path that we were probably going because it was sort of experimentation first, research and science second. And all, but also we, we know so much more about the brain 50 years later than we did, you know, back in the 60s. So maybe mm. maybe in some parts it was necessary and, and, and it's played out the way it needs to. But I, I guess I wanted to talk about it is because most people think this is a fringe issue. Like most people think that this is on the periphery of conversation and also of, of cultural importance. But my contention is that it's not. My contention is that this is actually central to the human experience in many ways. And so when we start 
thinking about it in that context, it sort of starts to change our approach to it and, and also the seriousness that we take these compounds. And when I talk about them, I'm, t- I'm talking mainly about sort of psilocybin mushrooms and a lot of the research now is around, you know, MDMA-assisted talk therapy for things like uh, treatment-resistant depression and anxiety and alcoholism, mm. drug addiction. But that, that's probably the central tenet that I try and impress upon people, that this is not a fringe issue. What was your best trip? <laughs> um, I mean, I think part of the problem, and it definitely was for me and for a lot of people, is that there is this disrespect for the compounds, for the plant medicines, and people, you know, treat them as something they can go out and party with or people treat them as something they can be irresponsible with. And I think I definitely did that when I was a bit younger and it's only when you get a bit older and realize how sacred they are how powerful they can be for your own transformation and how much reverence we need to give them that you sort of go oh i was sort of just fucking around you know yeah i mean and it's partly Um, because we flatten all drugs into this one category of drugs like it it's it's mm. crazy that a really nasty trashy substance frankly like like meth which is which turns everybody into an obsessive asshole who just needs more of it um is cla- is classified in this under the same umbrella as you know a magic mushroom or ayahuasca or something which uh, you know at its which for a start is is anti addictive you give a rat mm. You know, you give a rat meth or cocaine and they'll just keep tapping that little lever until they starve to death. They're just going to kill themselves with it. But you give a rat a trip and the rat's like, yeah, I don't need to go back to that. And people don't tend to go out every weekend and take acid or magic mushrooms or ayahuasca. But they do receive insights, whether pleasurable or, or not, into the nature of themselves. Uh, during those experiences, which are some, which is which are completely different from the sorts of experiences that people have on cocaine or amphetamines, so that alone I think contributes to part of the problem here. That like we talk about drugs like they're a thing, but I think I think it was Sam Harris who says like we wish we, we, we it's almost like if we talked about like exercise as just being a single thing, and we didn't make a differentiation mm. between mountain biking and like Olympic swimming. Yeah, that's all, or, or sports. All sports, yeah, sports are the right. same. Like yeah. w- w- you know, yeah. mixed martial arts is a sport, and badminton is a sport. You know. But so um, you were talking about level... you were talking about your sort of your party going disrespect for psychedelics in your youth, but presumably that evolved mm. into something that has had a profound spiritual impact on you. What was I want? I want you to be able to articulate that. Yeah, I mean, I think I had more seriousness around them maybe about 10 years ago. I was lucky enough to go to South America and go to Peru and spend a couple of weeks there and do a series of ayahuasca ceremonies and sort of explore, you know, what plant medicine could do if you took it seriously in the right space with the right people, with the right context and the right intention. And, yeah, I mean, you talk about what was what was – most powerful trip i mean that was that was an extraordinary couple of weeks in terms of just unlearning and deprogramming you know 35 years of consumption of of culture and uh, attachment to self and the own your your own narrative 
um, mm. and just being able to try and separate that constant chatter that you have, you identify that as yourself. But being able to very clearly be released from that and, and tap into whatever it is that is inside you that exists when you are not in that stream of thought and, and letting go of the identification with self is, is extraordinary, you know? How many and you can ceremonies do that did you do in that two weeks? I think we did six over two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And each one, you know, is very, very different, you know. And the first is, is kind of terrifying, you know. You don't know what to expect. You, you, you're holding on to a lot. I mean, a lot of, I think, initially for me, what happens is that the, the, the self and the ego is so persistent that once it starts to, it, its talons start to ungrip from you, it, it's a scary, scary moment. Because you're like, holy shit, what's happening here, you know? And that's why I think a lot of times people, when they have psychedelics, are scared that they're going to die. It's not mm. them dying. It's it's their ego. It's their right. idea of who they are is dying. And that's dissolving. And if you've been attached to that, if that has been, you know, your defining sense of who you are for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's terrifying. You don't want to let go of that, mm. you know. But there is something on the other side. Um, and so, yeah, we did six ceremonies over a couple of weeks. And then after that, I just started to read more, learn more. And when I would occasionally do um, psilocybin mushrooms, do them in the right setting with the right intention and make sure I treated them with the sort of respect that, you know, they definitely deserve. But my, I, th I think my biggest thing is that we, we talk a lot about freedom, what that idea is, what, what is freedom to you? Like it's, the freedom to be able to love whoever you want, that's a freedom. The freedom to be able to, you know, explore parts of the planet, which are, that there's a restriction on that, you know. There's parts of Australia I can go to. There's other parts that are, are inaccessible to me. Um, so we have some freedoms there. You have some freedom of being able to express yourself within limits. You know, there's obviously um, defamation laws and there's, you know, hate speech laws. So there are limitations around that. But my own consciousness, where I can go and how I can explore my own mind, that's an area where the government has no role. That is not a place for the government to intervene because there is nothing more intimate or sacred or personal than my own mind and my own consciousness. And as soon as the state or the government or an authority tries to intervene in there, a crossing a line that means that our freedom is means very little in the the real sense of the word because mm. there is no there, there are a few places that truly belong to you in this time in this society that we live in does that make sense yeah, absolutely it's a kind of, it's a kind of autonomy of consciousness or like the the, the freedom to be uh, to be self-directed in your in your experience of yourself and the world you're reminding me a little bit that um, when I was in the in the states there was a Supreme Court case about whether or not an inmate who may have been in Guantanamo Bay I think should be force fed because he was on a hunger strike and mm. the wardens wanted to force feed him and I think they ended up uh, succeeding to keep him alive. And this was couched by the jailers as being a humanitarian intervention. You don't want this person to die. It would be unseemly. It would be like, you know, it would be brutalizing or almost akin to torture to simply allow a person to die when you have the ability to keep them alive. But I heard this moving argument by a human rights lawyer saying that is the final frontier of 
autonomy and freedom for this person. You have stripped this person of absolutely everything. They have control over nothing. They don't control where they shit. They don't control when they get to go outside. Like they are a, a caged animal. And the one thing they can choose to do is to refuse to continue to exist and to refuse to be complicit in this system that you've erected around them. And the only way they have to do that is to stop eating and to kill themselves that way. They don't have anything sharp to kill themselves with. They can't hang themselves. There's nothing. All they can do is not eat. And you are removing, by shoving a feeding tube down their throat, you are removing that last tiny form of autonomy. When I thought about it like that, I was like, fuck, that's, that's dark. That is horrifying. And you're right that within the prison of our own brains, why don't we have the freedom to explore what the cosmos has to, has to offer? And that 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 case is so is so fascinating because America across the board has fought against any movement towards voluntary euthanasia, you know, allowing people to kill themselves. And here they are again when someone just wants to have their own autonomy. They're like, nope, no, 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 we can't allow that. We've mm. got to force feed because he doesn't want to be fed. To be fair, they've, they've had a few, it's a state-by-state state thing over there, and they've had states that allow voluntary assisted dying and even euthanasia uh, before Australian states did. But, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. They're, they're, that's why it's such an amazing, fascinating country. You know, different parts have got drastically different views on, on all parts of the, the cultural wars and, and of law and order. But, mm. um, yeah, forcing someone to eat when they, they don't want to, whereas then in what were they doing in Abu Ghraib? They were forcing them to eat through their asshole, yeah. reptile feeding. Yeah. 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 We'll, 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 we'll fatten you up one way or the other. <laughs> oh, man, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things that's interesting about psychedelic research is the staggeringly high success rate in uh, treating end-of-life depression among terminally ill people and also addiction you mentioned addiction like psilocybin as a cure for addiction i think they have something like a 70% success rate of for quitting smoking in a single in a single psilocybin trip uh mm. which it seems to reset your body's habits in some way it's it was articulated to me as if there'd been i think this is from michael pollan's uh great book about about all this uh what's it called how to how to change, how your, to mind. change your mind where he goes he's yeah. a, a best-selling new york times um author who has written who normally had had written about uh food and but really about the interface between the natural world and the human world and got interested in psychedelic research and so each chapter of this book he takes a different psychedelic and it's it's a wonderful read or listen to the audiobook if you if you if you want and he he uses the analogy of like it's almost as if you've got a ski run and there are all these grooves in the snow uh down going down the runs and the the trip puts a fresh coating of snow on so there are no more there are no more roots to kind of get stuck in. You can just sort of pave your own way. And that's the analogy that gets used with breaking habits. Like it's it's suddenly easy to just not take the path of smoking anymore because you've kind of gotten this elevated meta view of the absurdity of your own rut and you're able to to go around it. But this is all a long roundabout way of asking you whether or not you think there's a a kind of a cosmic or spiritual element to this because a plausible explanation of why it's so, it's so helpful with things like addiction and self-destructive behaviors like that and overcoming end of life 
depression is that it really opens your eyes to a a bigger universe of consciousness and meaning that's beyond our own human affairs, and that's essentially spiritual. Do you think it's telling us something about the cosmos, or do you think it's a beautiful explosion of fireworks inside our head? I think, you know, a decade ago I would have said the the latter, you know, that it's just fireworks going off in your head. But, I mean, the more you read about it and the more you dive into it, and especially around, I mean, Michael Pollan's a great example of someone who came in from a very sceptical viewpoint, but at the same time his background was food but also plant biology. He wrote an amazing book years ago. Um, it might be 15, 20 years old now called The Botany of Desire how there exists this amazing interplay between plants and how they are able to, you know, find each other and enable each other to to propagate through this very intricate dance. And the more we sort of learn about plants, the more we realise, oh, maybe what they have isn't necessarily consciousness, but, I mean, it's got to be very close to it. You know, there there's a lot of research now around trees are able to detect seedlings that belong to themselves through you know the 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 chemical chains that are emitted from those seedlings and they can direct resources to those seedlings that belong to them Mm. Um, they're not doing that consciously but it's not done accidentally yeah Um, and so there exists within plants obviously this intelligence now the the thing that they'll, they'll tell you in um, shamanic cultures is that how they worked out how to brew the ayahuasca was the plants told them how to do it. Now, you could believe that or you could also believe that, you know, these combinations of different plants fell together in a pot while they were cooking they brewed it together and were like, oh, this is doing something. But whatever you believe, the, the more time you spend understanding the intelligence of the natural world, the more you start to think, oh, God, maybe there is, you know, not only something bigger to this, but maybe the plants are trying to tell us something. I know that sounds insane. (laughs) That sounds insane when you say it out loud. I mean, you've set up a bit of a false binary, though. You've set up a bit of a false binary with the shamanistic, uh, like, ayahuasca recipe because I I don't think the alternative is only... Either the plants were trying to tell us something or the plants accidentally dropped into a pot and, hey, presto, there was a perfect recipe that came out because the the latter is implausible. But if you're talking about something that's been honed over thousands of years and some of these traditions are thousands of years old, that's a lot of generations of people to mix things together and accidentally and keep trying them and accidentally find something that works a little bit better than the way that it worked on your uncle uh, and gradually winnow it down. It's a sort of an evolutionary, like, meme process, isn't it? I, I mean, that sounds, seems like the most yeah. plausible version to me. But you're right. That Does that mean that we're, that we're doing it to the plant or that the plant is doing it to us in some way? It's a bit like the chicken or egg mm-hmm. conundrum about the domestication of animals. You know, humans have traditionally thought we domesticated uh, wolves to turn them into dogs, but... From the dog's point of view, like the dogs did a pretty good job of making themselves really successful by, you know, encouraging us to to welcome them into the into our homes. Um, so it's an interplay, isn't it? Totally. Same with same with you know, yeah, corn and wheat. Some people make the argument that those plants have adapted to make sure that you know we keep propagating them. Um, I mean, if you were a, a 
corn crop or a wheat crop, you know, you've done pretty well by yeah. hitching onto humans. Yeah, that's right, you know? exactly. But I think there's two questions there. I think one is, is there some innate knowledge within the plants? And I think for from my experience and many other people is when you take mushrooms in the right environment with the right context done responsibly, there's a, a point where you, you definitely feel you are being guided by the plants, you know, and, and it's really hard to articulate that and not sound crazy, but that's the lived experience of what mm. I've been through and what other people have been through, you know. But the other point I think you were trying to get to is that is there something going on that takes us to somewhere greater than ourselves? My my current thinking around it is maybe, but also whether or not that's true, what it does is it strips away the layers that enables you to access something that is already there. You know, there is a part of you and a part of me that, is already connected to the universe or the divine or something deeper and it, it is veiled from us through our upbringing our culture our education these hierarchies that we are enveloped in mm. but once once that veil is lifted and and the plant medicines are an amazing way to do that but you can do it through breath work you can do it through meditation you can do it through you know dance or love making or any of these sort of things, like we've all had that moment where we can access it and often it's very fleeting, but there is a part of us that we can tap into that is already connected to that greater universal divine. Yeah. It's this like, is how do we get there? I mean, this is sort of the doors of perception argument uh, from the mid 20th century where there, we are, there are doors, there are doorways of perception that, that are currently closed to us, but that are perfectly available to us if only we choose to look. And all the drug does is enable us to look. I mean, I remember, I, I haven't done many psychedelics at all and not for a very long time, but when I was in my teens, had an, uh, you know, one of the most profound experiences of my life in Byron, walking along Tallow's Beach with a couple of mates and having done and on a on a trip and i remember the feeling as we were coming down after about 5 or 6 hours or whatever it was and the sun was setting over byron lighthouse and we were getting to the end of the beach and i could, i could just it felt like there were shutters coming down that's the only way i can describe it it felt like we'd had this incredible series of sequence of mind expanding insights that were connecting us to something incredibly profoundly true and we were just beginning to lose the thread of those connections that we were beginning to i was it was just like soap slipping out of my hand or like a rope that had been taught suddenly going slack and i no longer had access to it i'd try to regenerate the, the the insights and they'd just kind of flop around and it felt like i am an i, I am a mammal who has evolved to only be able to understand what i need to understand in any moment to help me sort of procreate and survive on this planet. And the the drug had lifted the, those blinders and had given me an insight into something far more true, but also far too big to be practical to think about all the time. And as it was wearing off, that became less and less perceptible. It was almost like a cloud, like a frosted door in a, on a bathroom, like clouding over. Uh, until you can't see it anymore, and that—that that I think is the experience that a lot of people have. That's that, that you're articulating. Mm. And then, and, and after that, did you sort of wonder how do I get back to that, or what was that, or was that, 
Or did you think, oh, that was just a product of the, the compound? No, no, no. I definitely had a, what, what they call it, the noetic sense of uh, meaning the, the tru- a truth that is that you can't explain why it's true, but a, a sort of a spiritual or, um, or psychedelic truth where it's crystal clear that you've uh, been in the presence of something. And, I mean, I also had, did, had an ayahuasca ceremony when I was in the States and um and felt the same thing this and an exposure to the enormity of something that obviously isn't the product of your own head yeah and but you're right afterwards it's like how do i how do i capture that again how do i integrate these insights how do i hold on to them because it's like when you when you have an amazing dream and you you wake up in the morning and you remember parts of the dream but by the time you sit down to have breakfast and your coffee that that that's gone mm that what you felt in the dream, what you saw, that your senses in the dream, they've evaporated. I think it, Alan Watts used to say, like, once you've heard the message, hang up the phone. You know, you don't need to keep going back to do these. No, that's right. Exactly. Drugs. Uh, yeah. But I... it's like, how do I then, if, if that is what I want in my life, how do I cultivate that? And I, and I think that people, you know, whether it's um, Tibetan monks or Sufi masters, they, they all believe that that level of mysticism is accessible to us through discipline and, and practice. Yeah. I mean, but I know I, that I should probably... Like, you know, if you haven't got 10 years, then you can you can probably get a sneak peek for um, five grams, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I, could, I should probably be more mindful and, uh, you know, meditate more. But in the absence of that... I think you can retain a kernel of those insights, but just by retaining some wonder for the world, some generosity towards your fellow man, not getting caught up on Twitter too much and, you know, not trying to cancel everybody. Those are the ways that I try to articulate those aspirations (laughs) in today's culture. And I wonder sometimes why why we do that, why we go, ah, we know what's there. We know what we can access. But ah, 20 minutes, 15 minutes to bloody... Meditate yeah, every morning. Right. Oh, can't do that. I've There's got no people way. to shout yeah, out on I Twitter. Scroll, <laughs> can I scroll endlessly in social media for two hours? Yeah, in a second. Yeah. You know, I, I think part of it is also there's something more alluring in the in the temporal sense of, you know, flicking through social media, but also the self is so slippery and is such a shapeshifter that it's like, nah, you don't want to do that. Nah, I don't know. Because it knows its survival is at stake if you go further down mm. that well. And so it'll post all sorts of arguments yep. against why you should meditate, why you should go deeper, why you should try and connect with what you already know is true. It'll be like, no, 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 you don't want to do it. Uh, no, 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 meditation, that's woo-woo, that's new age. Oh, you haven't got time, you know. Yeah. It'll come up with a, a million brilliant plausible reasons to not go there because it has to preserve itself. Um, I mean, that's a nice metaphor, but I think that that function, that works even when you're not talking about meditation and and sources of wisdom. Anything that's big and scary that is worth doing, your body has a way of running from. I mean, I think that's just evolutionary or something. It's like it's it's resistance with a capital R is what um, uh, Stephen Pressfield calls it in his great book, The War of Art. Uh, where he's, you know, any anyone who's a writer knows the temptation to all of a sudden clean the kitchen when they have to, when they should be sitting down to write. 
Uh, and it's the same with meditation. It's the same with working out. Anyone who's on, you know, who who pledges to get fit after New Year as a New Year resolution knows that by, you know, January twenty second, you're finding reasons why you don't have time to work out. It's anything that that has a long term payoff but feels uncomfortable in the moment. It's it's funny, I guess, in the sense that, you know, you don't sit down and, and write that project or write that novel for a million different reasons, you know. Um, and I guess you you partly don't know what that feeling is like once it's completed because you haven't actually completed that project, but you kind of have, you've done other things where you know the payoff is there. So we know what the feeling is like. And, and that's the same once we've touched whatever it is is inside of us. We know what that feeling is, but we still, it's almost too much to go there all the time. Yeah. Um, do you have okay. hacks? Do you have hacks to get to, to to try to touch that and not get swept up in the day to day? Like, I mean, I find it really useful. The only times that I ever get anything worthwhile done in my life is when I make a commitment to do it the very, very, very moment that I get up in the morning. So if I have to, when I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and had to write an entire show, I would never do it if I didn't do it the very, very first thing without having access to my two hundred eleven thousand emails, uh, <laughs> you know, and just open up a a blank <laughs> page and do that from six to eight in the morning or whatever it is. Um, do you have any hack like that? I'm a terrible example because I'm always half starting things, never completing them, have a million ideas, write the first couple of pages and then, and then peter out. But I have been trying to get a lot better at that. And, and like you said, early morning is the absolute key. But for the, for the bigger picture, being able to tap into that, that bigger sense of connection to the all you know my my biggest hacks are like you've actually got to look after the car and you you are the car like if you drive out into the middle of the nullarbor and don't put air in the tires and put any oil in or fill it up with petrol or you know clean the windscreen you know your car's going to fall apart you know you're not going to be able to have that incredible drive and i think that's the same connecting to not just a, a higher spiritual place but also a greater purpose and that means like you can't you can't like treat yourself like shit and that means with what you consume not just with food it's like you can't be watching the kardashians for like six hours like filling your head with shit Mm. you you can't be eating sugar and drinking booze all the time because these things have an effect on your ability to cultivate something great you know it's really boring that shit's really boring so boring to say but Oh it's no, I don't so think it's true. boring and to say. Not, I think it's I think it's so boring to live that life. I mean it's it amazes me. This is what I think is so not, fucking pernicious but about but it's not yeah. you we're so attached. We're so attached to the idea that it's a boring life on the other side of that and we've never gone there. We don't know. You don't know that because you've never gone there and no one really has. No, I don't. Like well, wait a second. People. Where are you talking about? Because I, what I'm saying is that it is fucking boring. <clears throat> it is incredibly boring to spend your life consuming nothing but the Kardashians and sugar and social media, and yet it is enticing in its boringness because it's predictable and safe and pings us in just the right ways to keep us hooked. Right. I don't think anyone yeah. thinks it's boring to be alive and fit and well. I think they might think it's boring to not be able to eat a chocolate bar, but you can be fit and eat an occasional chocolate bar. You just can't have four a day. I don't and think my that- contention is if you really want to go there, like then you have to get rid of the chocolate bars altogether. Really? 
Yeah, and this is what and this is what people say. Well, that's boring. Like that, that that's is boring. Where, uh, that's where I thought you were going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you now. No, oh, yeah. sorry. Yes. No, I thought you right, were misunderstanding right, me, but July. you were understanding me perfectly. Yes. No chocolate bars is boring. <laughs> <laughs> we're in dry July, right? Yeah. And the resistance, absolute gnashing of teeth and kicking and screaming that people put up because they can't drink alcohol for four weeks. Yeah. For four <laughs> weeks. Yeah. Is mind blowing. No, like, I mean, look, I'm with I'm I'm with you. There's a but 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 yeah. alcohol again. This this is my point. Is so fucking boring. It really is boring. I mean, it is mind numbing both literally and metaphorically. I I I haven't drunk since last October. It's, it's almost a year since I had a, had a drink. Just because it was getting boring. It was getting really mm. predictable and not very interesting. And like, if you actually pay yeah. close attention to the experience. You know, even the experience of the chocolate bar, the first couple of bites are nice, but actually by the time I'm at the last bite, it sort of all just tastes the same. And I'm kind of yeah. just trying to get the taste out of my mouth of the last bite because it's so sweet. I can barely even handle it. Uh, and the same with booze. And also you're like, well, I can't, I've got to finish this now. I'm so cool. What am I going to do? Throw it out? I'm well, exactly. Out a quarter of a chocolate? That's right. That. That's right. Are you, uh, are you a fitness, <laughs> uh, are you a fitness nut at the moment? Are you a vegan? What do you, what's your eating regime? I'm pretty flexible, you know, I'm like your inbox, just like, ah, uh, whatever's there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this I, doesn't I, I comport to, with what you were just saying, James. No, but in terms of like, I'm not militant about any of these things. Um, Except for no chocolate Wow. No, my point is this. I'll eat some meat. Um, I'll eat some chocolate bars. But like, wh- my, my question is like, what if we really went there? Like, what if we really went there? We didn't have booze. We didn't have you know, any animal products. We didn't have sugar. We didn't check out on social media. We didn't indulge ourselves with shitty television. And immediately people listening go, oh, it's so fucking boring. Oh, God, what an awful life. But my contention is we don't know. We've never gone there. But I I know for a fact because I've seen it and I've, I've, I've dipped my toe in and I know people have gone there and, like you can go to a pretty incredible level, not just not not even being fit. Like fitness is such a crazy idea. It's, it's called um, the the idea of fitness is um has become a little bit um sullied. I reckon. You know, are you fit? Are you into fitness? Mm. It's like all of these things can allow you to connect to a greater sense of yourself. You know, and and you can't do it. That's my contention. My contention is you can meditate all you want. You can try and have a, a deep connection with yourself and those around you. But if you're having coffee every day and you're having booze three times a week, you can't do that. You cannot get to that deep level of connection. You know, well, you can, the, you, you can get somewhere. You can get somewhere that you're not right now. Yeah, but what are you doing? You're sort of just offsetting the the place that you're putting your body in through all these other things. I mean, I think think you're doing a couple of things. I think you're firstly uh, overestimating how how negative people will find this articulation of life. Like, I think, I don't think that most people will think that it would be boring to live a life without social media and trashy reality television and junk food. Uh, I think they might think it would be boring to have, to never eat any animal product or anything sweet ever again 
But then I think you're doing a second thing, which is almost what we accuse the people who are who outlaw psychedelics of doing, which is flattening all of these different categories into a single mega category. Just as meth is not a magic mushroom, so too, uh, you know, a creme brulee is not the Kardashians. And this very kind of ascetic life of monk-like uh, deprivation that you're articulating, I don't think is necessary. Like, it, there may be... There may be a mountain there to climb, and if you want to go climb it, I'll be uh, I'll be cheering you on to see what's at the top of it. But there's also just a there's a plateau a third of the way up the mountain that's really worth getting to that has a nice vista that is just don't eat quite so much sugar, don't consume quite so much caffeine and alcohol, and avoid things that drag you in drag your attention in places that are unproductive like social media and reality mm. TV, and like that's a start. Yeah, that's a start for yeah. me. Of course, that's a start. You know, I guess what I'm saying is the idea that w- that's where we were happy to go. You know, I just I'm not saying I go there. I'm not saying that I've done it, but you know, there are periods where I've tried. And I reckon you want to. Like, I can hear it in your voice. I want to go there. You want to put the backpack so on and you want to climb that mountain, James Matheson. This got so weird. This chat. <laughs> I don't know if that's where I wanted to take it, but. I, I, my point is this, yeah. right? You don't have to do it for it. What if you did it for? What if you went for it for one year? Well, why are you saying you? Why don't you do it? You're the one. You're the one suggesting it. Why are you asking me to do it? I'll be your Sherpa, but I'll stay at the bottom in the Nepalese hut and I'll watch you through with a pair of binoculars as you do it. You can do it. Why don't do you, you give up? Yeah, you can do it. Hillary, like not not lock her up, Hillary. Yeah, Edmund um, Hillary. Do you reckon Edmund Hillary really said to Tenzin Norgay, let's we'll step up there at the same time? Or do you reckon he took the step and then when he came back down he's like, Oh fuck. I sort of forgot about Tenzin a little bit there. Is the Tenzin. is that the just... Is that the the myth? Is I haven't heard that story. Is the myth that is the story that he got them both to stand at the same time? Mm, that's right. Yeah. But is there even a top that's that that's that small? I mean, a mountain's pretty big. Is there one spot that you put your foot? Biggest yeah, mountain in the spot. world. There must be a lot. There must be. No, just, I'm imagining. It's, the, it's the width of a Coke can. Is so that right? Just... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Doesn't sound I, right. There must be. A if you've got something, area. if you've got something that's thousands of meters high, I mean, there'd be a large, a large area. Maybe I'm just thinking of Mount Kosciuszko and a large plateau area. But I don't imagine that there'd be mm. one. I don't think there's like a pointy, like, children's drawing of a mountain with a pointy top that you put your foot on. Like a, an inverted Cornetto cone. <laughs> That's right, exactly. That's what I'm imagining, an ice cream cone turned upside down. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, this has been a lovely uh, conversation that went uh, to strange places, which I like them to go to uh, on a show called Uncomfortable Conversations. Is there Are there any final words that you want to leave the listener with, James? I'm so excited that um, research and science is is bringing, you know, psychedelic research into the modern age with responsibility and respect and also allows us to put our faith in in the guys in the white coats and put our fear-mongering aside. But um, I just think we have to remember that, yeah, that, that part of ourselves that allows you and me to explore something greater inside my mind, inside my consciousness, belongs to me. And it doesn't belong to a federal government. It doesn't belong to the police. It doesn't belong to anyone else. And 
yeah, I think uh, I think the government can stand down when it comes to affairs like this, and hopefully it can usher in a new revolution of um, yeah, a connection to something greater than ourselves. Because the planet's not doing so good, Josh. I don't know if you've looked around. And, and <laughs> that's and a subject for a whole other podcast. Our, it's possible that our, our our greatest contribution to saving the planet is our own awakening. Mm. So let's give it a go. Okay. I'm not going to eat any meat for dinner tonight. How's that as a concession? One night. I'm going to eat one night. One, uh, one night. How many coffees you on? Oh, mate, I'm be four or five a day. Is that a problem? Okay. We're going to start we, there, we are we? To wait to wait <laughs> What's wrong with coffee? Coffee is one, the one vice that's fine. It, make, it keeps me peppy. It's not booze. It doesn't make me violent. It doesn't make me mopey. It's not cocaine. It's not, you know, it's mm. coffee. It's all right. What's the... What's the longest you've gone without it for? I can go without it. I don't have any withdrawal symptoms. Sometimes I just forget, and then I'm, I realize a week later that I haven't had a coffee. Yeah, right. That's, it doesn't that's seem to affect unique. me very much. I can have a, I can have like a triple shot at 8 p.m., and it doesn't affect my sleep. It just gives me a slight pep in my step. Yeah, right. Mm. I'm a little concerned that I've come across as some sort of militant, holy-than-thou, anti, anti-social... <laughs> School headmaster. No, I mean, for a start, you're advocating drug use, so that would be an irresponsible headmaster <laughs> right off the bat. Uh, I think. Where I is think that school? Yeah, that's yeah, exactly the school where they don't allow chocolate bars, but they do encourage uh, ayahuasca. That's... Sign me up! <laughs> Sign me up, baby! I'm climbing that mountain. Thank you, James. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks for doing Josh. this.